Hello, everybody, and welcome back to High School Not So Much a Musical, the podcast made for high schoolers by high schoolers. You're listening to part two of a two-part series with Mr. Rooney, a teacher who's been teaching economics for 25 years and was also a part of the Illinois State Senate. In our last episode, we talked about economics, how it isn't as difficult as people seem, and what Mr. Rooney has observed as economic thinking and economic decision-making in our daily lives. In the second part, we'll focus more about how economics has developed over time, where it started from, how capitalism has formed, and how we really use the economy today, like what the economy really is and how it functions on a daily basis with the coronavirus and such. You listen to that right after this. This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride through the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jaladanki and Ayush Agarwal. So now that we've sort of started talking about government and stuff like that, so obviously there's different economic systems that have different varying levels of government intervention. And the, govern- and the younger generation tends to prefer an economic model based on where the government has a very heavy involvement. So for everybody listening, could you please talk a little bit about what capitalism is, the history of capitalism, how it was incorporated into the U.S. economy, and some of the benefits and harms that it can have? Well, that's quite a list here. Let me, uh, let me try to run through them all. Um, Sure. One of the things that we do in global studies, uh, setting up what we call the spectrum of economies, you've got capitalism on one side, you've got socialism on the other, and the fundamental difference is who owns the resources? Um, Who are the people who get to set up the businesses and make the decisions and so forth and so on? In on the socialist side of the spectrum, Uh, The government owns the resources and and even the businesses are owned by the government. Over on the capitalist side, it means private individuals own the resources and private individuals own the companies. So pure capitalism would say all the resources are owned by private individuals and private companies. Even a country like the U.S. isn't purely capitalist. If you think about some really big companies like the post office and Amtrak, the the train service, um, those are government owned enterprises. But we say that the United States is way far over toward the capitalism side of this spectrum that runs from capitalism to socialism. So Nitin, unfortunately, I, I think you're right. I do think that um, a lot of younger people do the way they talk seem to prefer the kind of thing where government is more involved than capitalism usually says it would be. And I, I actually think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, number one, a whole bunch of politicians who've been trying to get people to think certain ways have been calling lots of things in America socialism that aren't. And so if you take that definition, socialism means government owns the resources, capitalism means private individuals own the resources. When you're talking about social programs that help people, you get lots of politicians out there saying, you're bringing socialism. Well, that's not socialism. That's called redistribution. 
And, and that's a whole different thing. So, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, it was the big thing for people to go, look at Sweden, look at Sweden, they're socialist and they do it. Well, they're actually not very socialist. They're, they're one of the freer markets in the world. What they do is redistribute. The, the, the current version for people is Denmark. Look at Denmark, look what Denmark does. Denmark is one of the freest. It's just that they redistribute. So, you know, when, when we start thinking about capitalism, don't necessarily think that capitalism is the heartless alternative to social programs and so forth and so on. Capitalism says we, the, the market should be free. And in most cases, people should be able to choose whether or not they want to buy stuff. And there should be competition. Going back to Ayush's question, um, those are just the factors that people are looking for with capitalism. So if, if we want to talk about how capitalism got into the American system, it's basically been in the American system the whole time, like back from the very beginning. The whole world who moves in the capitalist direction, back at that time, we went through kind of a transitory stage called mercantilism, which APUSH students have probably come across that term too. But it, it, it was basically like this adolescent period where capitalism was developing. The, the, the book that people consider the founding of economics, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, it was written in 1776. Coincidentally, the birth of the United States. And so in a very real way, capitalism didn't come into the American economy. It was there right at the birth of the nation and we've built it ever since. So when it comes to the benefits and the harms of capitalism, my favorite snarky little way to express it to my students is the best thing about capitalism and the worst thing about capitalism are the same thing. The best thing about markets is that they will give you what you want. The worst thing about markets is that they will give you what you want. And what we mean by that is if what people want are things that make their lives easier, things that are good for them and their neighbors, things that are good for the environment. If enough people want those things, the market will give them to us. But the bad part is we have to want the right things. And so when enough people want those things that are more destructive, well, if people want them, the market's gonna give it to them because markets are all about selling things to people that they want. So the best parts of capitalism, in my opinion, I think you can just look at human history. If you go back and look at human history, like at least from the Roman Empire forward, there is no system that has lifted more people out of poverty over human history than capitalism has. You probably have some social studies teacher who told you what Winston Churchill is supposed to have said about democracy. 
it's the worst form of government except for all the others that we've tried. Well, there are a lot of people who will tell you the same thing about economics, excuse me, about capitalism, that when we look at the rough edges of capitalism, um, it can promote inequality between people that maybe a government would have to step in and do something about. It can lead to providing those things that are more destructive for people. It can lead to those things that aren't so good for the environment without shifting people's attitudes toward the things that are better for us. And so I think when folks who are your age tend to focus on those bad, bad, bad things about capitalism, it's because you're so used to the good things about capitalism that they've become invisible to you. And, you know, just look at all the progress that China has made over the last 30 years, seeing phenomenal economic growth that even here in America we haven't had. How did they do that? They brought more capitalism into their system. What's going on in Cuba right now? They're bringing more capitalism into their system because, well, the opposite doesn't produce the strong results that make people healthier, that make people wealthier, that make people better off. We haven't seen a system that has made more people better off than capitalism. It doesn't mean it doesn't have some harsh edges to it, but it means you still have to remember all the good that comes with it. I think another major component of capitalism is the intellectual property rights that are present. Uh, as you mentioned, in a socialist economy, like the government pretty much owns everything. So it, let's say that I'm an inventor and I come up with an invention tomorrow that has the potential to save like millions of lives. Uh, then that's technically under the control of the government in a, in a socialist economy. But in a capitalist economy, we have things called patents, which is a, a type of intellectual property where uh, if I'm that inventor and I invent that thing, I can file a patent for it and say that this is my invention, nobody else can use it. And uh, once I can develop it into a product that can be sold on the market, uh, I can make millions of dollars. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, intellectual property and uh, why it's so beneficial in a capitalist economy? Because uh, in a capitalist economy, land isn't owned by the government, it's owned by the person who bought that land. If I own a house, I have full access to do whatever I want. Um, on that land, it's my intellectual property. Uh, and that goes for a lot of things, right? It goes for any sort of investments you make, any sort of capital you have. So uh, could you talk a little bit about intellectual property, its importance in a capitalist economy? Uh, what what would happen if, you know, intellectual property wasn't present? Because for example, um, I was reading in to how maybe in, if there's a lack of intellectual property present in the pharmaceutical uh, country uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, then that could end up leading to like less medicine or drug innovation, for example, because now um, everyone's so scared that if they spend billions of dollars and decades investing into a brand new life-saving drug, then somebody else could now just steal that 
technology and steal that medical innovation and just create multiple different generic copycats of it because there's no patent protection to uh, keep it within the company who first created that innovation. So uh, could you talk a little bit about intellectual property and what are the benefits you think it has on spurring innovation in today's economy? That's a great point, Ayush, because economics is very big on all kinds of property rights. So with just a quick diversion, um, property rights in general, economics is so big on and, and they're so important to capitalism because as the way we phrase it in my class, if quote unquote, everybody owns something, then nobody owns it. And to give people incentives to take care of stuff is one of the big benefits that comes out of property, property rights. So if we shift into intellectual property specifically, and you were already touching on this, it's meant to provide incentives. It's meant to give people a reason to tinker, to invent, to try to do this, to try to do that. And, and yes, the patent system has some quirks in it that make us all mad when people abuse them. But it's just like we were talking about a little while ago with capitalism. Those rough edges make us forget the invisibility of this huge incentive that people have to know that if they're the one who comes up with the million dollar idea, they'll get the million dollars. It's, it's, it's what gives them the drive. It, what, it's what gives them the energy. It's what gives them the, 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 the desire to put the time and the resources into it. Without a basic system in which people can benefit from their ideas. If you're always worried that somebody's just going to steal your idea and run with it, then why come up with new ideas? This is an idea that's as old as capitalism itself, that if you want people to do stuff, they have to have an incentive to do it. And so in the systems where you don't have those rights, you tend to see a lot less stuff going on. The, the United States has been a very free market for over 200 years now. And just take a look at all of the inventions and innovations that have come out of the United States of America. That's not a coincidence. That's part of what's built into the system. Okay, so my next question is that people say prices have gone up with COVID. And that's obviously something that I've seen because going to a restaurant now, one meal that costs maybe say $11 before COVID now costs $13.50 or $14.50, something like that. And many people fail to recognize why the prices have gone up and they just go and complain. The prices have gone up with COVID and all of this, but could you explain why the prices actually went up in economic terms and why this impact happened and why it fell mostly on consumers rather than producers? Well, the rising of prices that we've seen is pretty much classic economic theory at work. There's not one cause, 
Um, and, and the causes don't all have the same magnitude to them. But if you go out there and read the standard stuff that's going on there in the field of economics right now, we have pushed so much more money into the system to try to handle what's been going on with COVID that, that if you look at a chart of the money supply of the United States, it just takes off like a rocket from when the government started reacting to COVID. I'm not complaining about it a single bit. This is one of the things that you do in an economic crisis, but this is standard economics. You throw more money into any system, what you get is higher prices. Because one of the fundamental ideas of economics is the idea of scarcity. Things are scarce when we don't have as much of them as we want. So if there's a really big gap between how much of something we have and how much of it we want, those things tend to be valuable. So the bigger the gap between how much we have and how much we want, the more valuable something is. And what that means is when we have more of that thing, its value will go down. So now that we have more money in the system, the value of money has actually gone down. And that's one of those confusing things of economics. We talk about something going down. Well, then why do we call it inflation? Doesn't that seem the opposite? Well, prices are going up because money is worth less than it used to be. There's just more of it out there and when people have more, they're willing to spend more. And as soon as businesses find that out, they go, okay, well, then we can raise our prices some. So most of the stuff that's going on with inflation these days, economists are talking about it's because of the money that we've put into the system that the whole time we've been doing it, we've known we have to do it carefully because this can just result in inflation if we're not careful. The people who are supposed to try to manage this for us are the people at the Federal Reserve and everybody watches their meetings like a hawk to try to find out, hey, when are they gonna start to scale back some of this money that's been in the money supply? That's pretty much what's driving everything. And you hear the Federal Reserve, you know, talking about all these uh, fancy terms about like buying and selling government securities and government bonds and quantitative easing and all this sort of stuff. But um, wouldn't you say that, that another reason for why prices are going up is because businesses are simply trying to recuperate like losses that were that they experienced from quarantines and shutdowns like lockdowns? Because I personally think that, you know, if a business lost over a year's worth of, of revenue because uh, they weren't able to stay open due to COVID uh, and the, uh, and they were forced to shut down uh, due to public health concerns, then it's kind of in their natural incentive to increase prices after the quarantine was over to uh, kind of recuperate those, those losses. Um, so would you say that's another reason for the increased inflation or do you think it's primarily due to uh, Federal Reserve actions that were necessary to boost the economy in the time of the crisis? 
Is there some of that going on in our increasing prices? Yeah, sure there is. Just like now that people are having to pay employees more money to get them to be willing to work. And willing to work might mean they already have a job that they're staying home from and to get them to come back in, they have to pay more. Or it could mean they, they don't have a job right now and a business that's looking for employees is finding that they have to offer more money to get people to be willing to take the job. Is, is, is there some of that going on in the increase in prices that we're seeing? Yes, of course there is. Um, but I do think most people would tell you those are much smaller causes than the fundamental economics of the system is swimming in money right now. And whenever you put more money into a system, you get higher prices. That's what's been going on with homes for decades. That's what's been going on with college tuition for decades. So it's gonna happen system-wide, like right now too. Okay, so I think that we've been talking for a while now about econ and economic problems and how it affects society and how it actually came to be. But why don't you, why don't we switch it up a little bit? So Ayush and I have both taken AP Econ. And it's probably the course that I've enjoyed most in high school. So for everybody out there who is either just starting to take out AP Econ with the new school year or is deciding whether or not to take AP Econ, could you like give them a quick preview of AP Economics, Micro and Macro? and give them like a quick pitch on why they should take the course and what you learn out of it. Well, I kind of do every year, so I can always do it here too, absolutely. Uh, AP Econ is actually split into two separate semester classes at a lot of schools because it's split into two different tests. There's AP Microeconomics and there's AP Macroeconomics. So my quick pitch to people without getting into the definition of microeconomics means looking at economics from the level of the individual firm or consumer or industry. Oh, wait, I guess I just did give you the definition. And without really getting into the definition of macroeconomics, which is examining the workings of the economy as a whole. Oh, wait, I, I just did give you the definition. But what does that mean? It essentially means if you're somebody who thinks you have an eye toward business, like as a career, well, micro is where they do that stuff the best. In microeconomics, you're going to be talking about some of the stuff we were just talking about. How do businesses figure the best ways to recoup their costs? And you're going to be talking about the marginal costs and the average costs and the total revenue and the marginal revenue. That's stuff that makes businesses go. And so if that's where your interest is, that's what they're going to be doing in the micro semester. That's what you're going to be tested on in the micro test. If you're one of the people who's a little bit more into the government angle of things in terms of, hey, what about uh, how, how are we going to uh, go back to a normal economy once all this COVID stuff is over. Um, you know, all this crazy stuff that's been going on with unemployment, when's it going to be back to normal? All the inflation, all the unemployment, all the GDP stuff is macroeconomics. 
that's what you're going to do in your macro semester. And that's what they're going to test you about on the macro test. And so if you're lucky enough to be at a place that provides them both to be able to get the business angle from micro and the government angle from macro, I think it's the best of both worlds. I think that's what makes the class so interesting because you kind of get to examine it from both perspectives because from the business side, you're so focused on how to make the most amount of profits, right? How can you uh, minimize costs and be the most efficient in your production processes to uh, maximize profits and uh, uh, set the price so that way you get the most amount of consumers and make the most amount of revenue, uh, rev uh, total revenue, total cost, total profit. And then from the government side of things, you get to uh, kind of figure out not from so much of a profit lens, but so much uh, from more of a lens of, you know, uh, how to maximize well-being for the most amount of people, uh, because it's more about like a, a utilitarianism mindset and uh, how to make sure that like the citizens of your economy are able to maintain a stable job and maintain a stable income. Um, this kind of leads to uh, what I wanted to ask next, which was more about employment. Uh, now, our school is very focused on getting into a, a good college, and I'm sure that uh, most high schools across America, that's what they prepare you for, right? Uh, maximize your amount of APs, maximize your amount of extracurriculars, write the best essays you can, get into a good college, because that's going to increase your uh, that's going to increase your educational foundation to uh, make you a better piece of human capital when you go into the workforce. So I wanted to kind of switch gears for the conversation a bit to uh, more of a uh, employment perspective and was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how a high schooler goes from, you know, learning like the core subjects, their math, their sciences, their English, to actually going into the workforce and how that kind of plays out from an economic perspective. So uh, how are they viewed as marginal uh, utility when they first enter the workforce versus how their experience increases um, their like productive capacity and makes them more valuable to businesses and uh, how um, a person in high school, for example, me or Nathan in this case, how we would actually go from being just a high school student to a worker in the workforce, or maybe even potentially an employer. One of the big things that we see in economics is that the ways that you can command better wages is by having better skills to offer your employers. So notice I said skills, not necessarily knowledge or education. There are certain things out there in the economic world where the laws operate just as well as in the working class jobs as they do in the white collar jobs. So essentially, people who have the skills that employers need are the ones who get hired and are the ones who will get better wages. So when we talk about unemployment, I always love directing my students' attention to the part in their book. I actually do it through a quiz question, so they have to see it. Among the most likely to be unemployed are teenagers. It's right there in the textbook. And it's because the skill sets 
of somebody who's younger is just not as big as the skill set of somebody who's had more life experiences. And so no matter what kind of job you get after high school, the longer you stay in a field and the more you develop the kinds of skills that people want, the easier it'll be to change jobs if you want to, and the easier it'll be to get raises if you stay at the job where you are. And that applies across the board to just about any kind of job. When it comes to people who generally tend to be on the college track, the way this comes up the most between me and my students is when people say, you know, well, I, I got to figure out where to go to college. You know, uh, how do I how do I know where to go to college if I want to do such and such? And the first question I always ask them is, are you the kind of person who's lucky enough to have already figured out sort of kind of what you want to do when you get older? Because if you are that kind of person, then you find out what colleges and universities are known for what you want to do. And you just go to one of those. And you don't worry about where it is and how far it is from the town you live in, you don't worry about how much it costs. You don't worry about what the campus is like. You go where they're known for what you want to do. Because if they're known for what you want to do, the jobs will come to you. You won't have to really go out and seek them. The job fairs there will be from the biggest, best companies that are paying the most. And you're, you're going to have that signal of your diploma from that place that is known for that thing. That's the strategy because, well, it's the quickest way to prove to the people who are going to hire you, you have what they want to see in an employee. I don't know. Did that get at what you wanted, Ayush? Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it answers the question. And the main reason I asked that was because like so many young kids these days, they're solely focused on getting into college. And oftentimes when you go to like a college campus and ask them like, you know, what's your strategy after you get out of college? They don't really have an answer to that. They don't know what they want to do with their lives beside because all throughout high school, all they were so focused on was getting into college. So I think I think that answer was super helpful. And if I can add, there's a game that we do in EFL that you guys didn't get to do because we can't really create an online version of it, but it's a game called the job jungle. And the reason I bring it up now is because when I get to talk to the teachers in the afternoons, when the students are all doing the leadership part, I and the professors are working with the teachers. I always make a pitch that, hey, teachers, we all need to remember that not everybody's going to go to college and not everybody's going to go to college right away. And we kind of need to be careful about over pushing college, college, college to everybody. Some people are best served, like my older brother was, not going right away and waiting until he was actually ready to go. Because when he was ready to go, it did him better service. 
he he did better in college than he would have if he went right away. Um, he was able to get into a program in electrical engineering, which there's no way he would have qualified if he had tried to go straight from high school. And he ended up getting a much better job and a much better career because of it. So, like I say, a lot of the things that we're talking about here don't just apply to college. They apply to people leaving high school to go out and do anything, doing the military like I did. Sure, you're not going to get like, you know, raises and you're not going to be able to negotiate your own contract in the military. But once again, finding out what they need from you and learning how to do what they need from you is your best way to succeed there too. So these things that we're talking about don't just apply to college, but they do apply to college pretty well. One thing that we normally do with our guest speakers is we just ask them to give some advice to our listeners. So we want to do the same with you. And first of all, thank you so much for your time for the past one hour, giving all your insight into econ and everything else. So just to wrap us up, could you please give us a or give our listeners a quick tidbit of advice that they can use and keep with themselves after listening to this podcast? All right, I'll give it my best shot. Um, we're probably getting close to the hour mark because I don't seem to be able to give a short answer to anything. So <laughs> I'll try to keep this one on the shorter side. Um, aside from the advice I gave just a little while ago, which I think is really solid. If you know what you want to do in life, then go to the places that are known for what you want to do and things will come to you instead of you having to chase them down. But I also think another piece of advice that I'll often talk with students about is we have uh, an opening exercise from a book called Economics in One Lesson. And one of the big things right at the beginning talks about you always have to be considering the short term and the long term and then making your decision based on like, what do you want from the situation? Keeping both of those in mind. So you make your decisions, not just based on what it'll do for me now. And, and of course, some people know that, you know, do, doing what's good for me right now, you know, well, you're right. I, I, I shouldn't do that. Y yeah, sometimes you should. Oh, yeah, I, I know. I should always be thinking about my future. I should always be thinking about the long term. Mm, often, but not always. Keeping in mind that balance, you have to think about what the short term effects of your decision are going to be and think about what the long term effects are going to be. Because if you ignore either one, it's not going to be a great decision. And then once you've made sure you've considered both the short term and the long term, that's when you can make the decision that's best for you. A lot of the problems that we have in this country are because we're so short term thinking. And so sometimes when people hear that, they go, oh, yes. And so we shouldn't think short term ever. We should always be long term. No, 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 no. You should always consider them both and then make your best decision based on both of those things being in your mind. That, that's my best shot at econ advice. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Rooney, for your great insights and all your time. Just to wrap it up for our listeners, if you have the chance to take an economics course at your school, Ayush and I highly recommend that you take it as it helps you understand the decisions that people make in the, on, a, on an everyday basis. And for everybody out there, whether you're listening on Spotify, YouTube, just make sure that you subscribe to us or drop a follow on any of our platforms and watch out for future episodes where we will be talking to a financial advisor on how we make financial decisions and how you can create personal wealth for your future. We'll also be talking to a college admissions expert on how you can write your college essays for college and how to make them stand out from all the others. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of High School Not So Much A Musical, and a big thank you to Mr. Rooney once again. That's our show for today, now roll the credits. High School Not So Much A Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal and Nitin Jaladanki. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang, Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like the show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you for listening and see you next time.